Um, Today's reading is from John chapter 5. It's verses 16 to 47. Um, and this will be up on the screen and is in also, also in, is in your leaflets. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defence, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son, that all may honour the son just as they honour the father. Whoever does not honour the son does not honour the Father who sent him. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge, because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favour, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I'm doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. 
I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. You have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are sent. Set, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Well, thank you, Lisa. Now, all of that said by Jesus comes on the back of him healing um, the uh, paralytic at the pool. Uh, uh, and you heard about that last week. Uh, if you can open your Bibles or have it open on your phone, that would be great. Uh, an outline of the talk is there in your leaflet. That's also helpful. Although I should say, um, the talk will take most of the time to get through the first half of the leaflet, all right? So don't freak out <laughs> if it seems like that. Let's pray. Our loving Father, uh, we want to hear Jesus' words because his words are life. And we know that there is a time coming when he will call out and he'll call people to rise up from the dead. And even now, those who are living, those who hear his voice can move from death to life. So his words are powerful. And we want to pay careful attention to them today. So help me, I'm a bit under the weather, help me to be clear. And please help us on this long weekend to listen and to be fed. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I don't know if you realize, but today we heard Jesus speak about intolerance. And the way the passage gets into the issue is by asking, which is worse? Now, kids, you know the game. What's worse than finding a worm in your apple? Finding half a worm in your apple, okay. What's worse than a giraffe with a sti stiff neck? An elephant with a cold, okay, all right. People can play this game when speaking against Christian faith. What's worse than the Bible saying that the world was made in only seven days? Well, you know, what's worse than that? Saying that God made people male or female, bombshell. What's worse than God's saying that God made people male or female? Well, saying that God is against sex outside of marriage, What's worse than saying that God is against sex outside of marriage? Saying that a God of love gets angry at sin. What's worse than saying that a God of love could find it in himself to get angry with us? Well, what do you think? I mean, what issue today in Australia generates, do you think, the most heat, the most immediate outrage, the biggest objection to Christian faith? Is it that the Bible is against homosexual behavior? That sounds really intolerant, doesn't it? I reckon the bigger issue is the announcement that the risen Jesus is the rightful Lord of every single person and he is the only saviour, the saviour everyone needs and that anyone who thinks differently is fundamentally wrong. Yeah, that's big, isn't it? Okay, the issue occupies the whole of chapter one in Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, because it sounds so offensive and so arrogant to say that. And we feel it. 
When our kids were little, uh, we made friends with a refugee family that turned up at the local school. They were from Afghanistan. And no one else made friends with them, so we did. And we ate in each other's homes, and our kids went to each other's birthday parties, and I'd do magic tricks for them at their kids' birthday parties. And when their eldest was 10 years old, I'd arranged that their school could visit Trinity Church Adelaide as part of their faith curriculum so that I could actually tell them what Christians believed instead of just touring around some building. Well, as I was explaining how Jesus was the one and only saviour that we need, I remember looking down at 10-year-old Farah, who was the eldest child in this family, and I could feel her discomfort. Here she was, this lovely girl whom I knew. She was loyal to her family, and she was hearing from a family friend whom she had welcomed into her home that I thought she and her family, who were Muslim, were wrong, totally wrong. Not that I spoke about Islam, I only spoke about Jesus. But when you speak about Jesus being the only saviour and Lord, you're speaking about other faiths. Later on, I caught up with the family and the parents, after hearing from Farah, and Farah was at the kitchen table when I heard this, they said it had come across as arrogant. Now, I was only trying to tell the good news. We feel it, don't we? We feel it. We feel it because our society doesn't tolerate the intolerant, even though that means that they themselves become intolerant and contradict their own values. But we feel it. We all know people who aren't Christians, good people, friends of ours, family. The thought that they would be rejected by God just because they do not believe in Jesus, it's almost too much to bear, isn't it? And so many of us just simply go quiet on the issue. Isn't that the pressure we all feel under? And we succumb. What? Because why are we so intolerant? And, and why are people intolerant of us? And how does Jesus handle it? Well, today we are going to hear how Jesus handles intolerance. So kids play the game which is worse, adults play the game of Christianity which is worse. In today's passage, the Jewish leadership played it when questioning Jesus. In their minds, Jesus is on trial. He's the defendant, he's in the dock. He's got a case to answer for and they're asking him which is worse and Jesus gives his answers, his defense. So which is worse, to heal a man who's been unable to walk for 38 years? You wouldn't think that was a bad thing, would you? Which is worse, to do that or to do it on the Sabbath? Breaking man-made religious rules. Now, now please recognize, here is Jesus on trial. He hasn't murdered anyone. He hasn't harmed anyone. He's done good in someone's life. He's healed someone. He hasn't broken any of God's commands. He's broken the laws, the religious laws they've made up, which they've added to the Bible, but he hasn't broken any of God's commands. So which is worse, healing a man on the Sabbath or telling him to pick up his mat and walk or then finding the man later and challenging him to stop sinning and then threatening him with the judgment to come. Now for the man, that's worse. He goes and betrays Jesus to the Jews. You heard about this last week. 
To the Jewish leaders, it was the Jesus breaking of their Sabbath rules, which they couldn't stand. And so in verse 16, they start persecuting him. To which Jesus says, my father, that is God, is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. But now, this inflames the situation, which is worse, to deliberately break the Sabbath rules, or to justify it by saying things about himself which make himself equal with God, that's far, far worse. He, a man, is claiming equality with God. Now here we see, please understand, the idea that Jesus is God, or equal with God, is not made up by his followers. It wasn't made up by the bishops in the fourth century who drafted the Nicene Creed. Jesus says it himself, and the Jewish leaders heard him say it himself. Verse 18, for this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You see? And now we get to it. This is it. This is why people say Christianity is intolerant. It comes down to this. Because think about it. If Jesus really is who he said he is, then what does that say about other people's beliefs? If Jesus really is equally God, then Judaism has to be a dead end, doesn't it? Because Judaism, today's Judaism, looked forward to God turning up, but when it did, he did turn up, it missed him. Um, meaning that Judaism now, which looked forward to the coming of God, will always be incomplete. It's like a book with an introduction, but no chapters to follow. If Jesus really is one with the Father, divine, then Islam cannot be right. Islam says that Muhammad, who came after Jesus, was the final prophet. But think about it, if Jesus really is God, there is no greater prophet. He reveals God completely in himself. And that means Muhammad cannot be the final prophet because you cannot get a clearer revelation of God than that which Jesus brings. And that means that all Muslims need to turn to Jesus to be saved. They cannot be saved in Islam. If Jesus is God, Buddhism is not the path to enlightenment because they miss Jesus. Jesus is the path to enlightenment. And if Buddhism fails to point you there, it's not enlightening. It leads you away from the light and into darkness, do you see? If Jesus is God, then atheism and secularism are false trails. Because atheism and secularism says that you, we, we are the center of the universe. But it's not true, because Jesus Christ is the center of the universe. And if you fail to live your life around him, it's not only just going to be empty, it will be an insult to the one who really is Lord. So you see, the label of intolerance all comes back to whether Jesus really is God or not. Now, admittedly, it can be hard to understand. Um, Muslims think it's blasphemous to say that Jesus is God. That would be like bringing God down, making God like a dog, okay? And the way to counter that is to say, well, you have a low view of humanity. The fact that the incarnation could happen says something wonderful about who we are made in the image of God. 
But even, and it wasn't as if uh, we made it up that Jesus became, um, well, the Son of God be, uh, became human. Because what, what if God the Father himself decided that uh, he, in his Son, would become human? What if that was a self-decision from him? Well, you can't argue against that if God decides it, okay. Um, it can be hard to understand, entailed with it are the thorny theological objections of how can Jesus be God without there being two gods and in what sense can someone who is human be said to be God? Um, that's why we read the Nicene Creed. These were exactly those issues that were rattled out there. So what is Jesus going to say in his defense? Well, Jesus gives his defense in verses 19 to 40 and what he says is this. He says, the Father and the Son are one. They are unified, both in giving life and in pronouncing judgment. And that that's true both now in the present and later on the day of judgment. Father and the Son are one in giving life and pronouncing judgment. That's true now and later. So Jesus is saying, anything that I do, I do as the Son of the Father. I'm not acting separately from him. Any authority I have has been given to me by God the Father. Firstly, he says the Father and the Son are one. In verse 19, Jesus says the Father and the Son are united in action. The Son can do nothing by himself. He only does what he sees his Father doing. And whatever the Father does, the Son also does. This is why we say Jesus reveals God completely. Okay. In verse 20, there's an intimacy of affection. The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he does. All the work of creation, the Father shows the Son. No surprise, therefore, that the Son, when he happens upon a cripple, he recreates the cripple's legs. He's seen his Father's creation, creative work at work. I'm not a doctor, but Norell as a physio tells me that the crippled man's leg muscles would have been completely wasted and contracted. He had not walked for 38 years. And for him to get up and walk around would have required a, a complete re-knitting and recreation of muscle tissue. And even if that were accomplished, he'd have to spend months in rehab learning how to walk again. And yet Jesus enables him to walk just with a word. It's a complete act of creation. Now why? Because verse 20, the father has shown the son the creative work he does and the son does likewise. And then Jesus tells us that the Son will do even greater things than these. And we say, what could be greater than that? And verse 21 gives the answer, and it, it is this, giving life to the dead. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, this is exactly what the Son does. He gives life to whom he is pleased to do it, just like he gave life to the dead legs of that crippled man. You know, so often people rail against a God, the God of the Bible, who they don't know because they haven't read it, and they see him as distant and uncaring and evil. That is very different from the God we see in Jesus, isn't it? Whereas everyone else has overlooked this man, Jesus showed interest in him. Whereas this man was entirely without friends, having no one to help him to the water's edge, and I'm drawing on last week's sermon, Jesus, in his compassion, was a friend to that man. He saw someone in need, he took the initiative, he healed him, he restored him. 
And Jesus says the son can only do what the father does. You want to know what the father is like? You look to the son. He's like this, he's concerned for your welfare. He's a friend to the friendless. He's an initiative taker. He's not against us. He is a life giver. And so in his defense, Jesus says, the Father and the Son are one in giving life. And then in verse 22, Jesus says, they are also one in pronouncing judgment. The Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. On the day of judgment, it will not be God the Father who will judge us. It will be Jesus who will be the judge of the world because the Father has given him that authority. Now many people recoil at that idea of God because how could a God of love and compassion judge people? Well, I would like to say, how could he not? You think of the horrors that are happening today in Myanmar to people over there. Think of the horrors that are happening in Yemen. The terrible things happening in the Sudan. How could a God be a God of love and compassion and not hold people to account? I mean, a God who didn't hold people to account is a God who doesn't care or doesn't love. The Father loves, he cares, and that's why he judges. The Father has entrusted then that judgment to the Son. He's done it, verse 27, because his son, equally God, is the truest human who has ever lived, the son of man. Jesus uses those words of himself. That's very important. If you look up the references to the son of man in the Gospel of John, most of them refer to him suffering and dying. It matters for judgment that the one who is the judge has been through the worst of human suffering himself. He knows He has compassion for people, right? Now I find that enormously comforting that the one who judges the people of the world is the one who understands the pain of injustice. To summarize, Jesus' defense is that he's one with God, he's been um, given to share in the authority of the Father in both giving life and in judging. The implications of that are of course great. The most obvious implication is that we have to take his words about judgment very seriously. So when Jesus says to the man, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you, it is no empty threat, he is speaking the truth. But his words also speak to us, don't they? We live in a multi-faith world and in our multi-faith world, what does it mean that the father has given his authority of life and judgment uniquely to his son? The answer is that at the heart of God's plans are his desire for one person to be honored above all others. At the Father, deep down, wants his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be honored above all. That is his clear goal. Jesus says it in verse 23. The Father judges no one, but he has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Why? That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. That's the Father's clear goal. And that is why I take it Jesus is intolerant of other people's faiths. Look at the second half of verse 23. Um, He does us a service here to be clear, you have to spell out the negative as well as the positive. 
Here he spells out the negative. He says, whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. So he's saying, when you think about it, if you hold to any belief system except the one Jesus sets out here, then we are going against the father's aim to bring honor and glory to his son. Now again, I'm laboring the point, but I think we need to hear it. This is why my Muslim friends need to hear about Christ. Why do they? Because Islam, it dishonors God because it doesn't honor the Father's Son, Jesus. But the Father will still see that one day everyone will honor the Son, and that's why he makes him the judge. You see, on that day, when the Son appears, we are told that every knee will bow, and on that day, even unbelievers will confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is what the Father intends, that the Son will be honored by all. Now, when we know that the Father and the Son are one and that the Father's deep goal is to honor his Son, suddenly Jesus' intolerance makes sense. Okay, so we've spent a fair bit of time, and it's been weighty, hasn't it, talking about intolerance. What about tolerance? Look now at verse 24, because the good news is very tolerant when you think about it. He says, whoever hears his word and believes in him who sent, um, in, in the one who sent him, has eternal life and will not be judged. He has crossed over from death to life. Whoever, whoever. He doesn't say only Jews, um, you know, get in. He's not saying only people born in Christian households with Christian parents who go to private schools get in. He's not saying it's just Westerners or just Chinese or just Koreans. He's saying whoever hears Jesus' word and believes the Father who sent him has eternal life. And that's present tense, it starts now. And will not be condemned, will not be judged on the last day. And that is news of great joy, isn't it? Because such a person, says Jesus, has cosmically shifted. They have crossed over from the realm of death, the cooking pot, right, into the realm of life. This is a movement we cannot see, but which from God's viewpoint is real. He has an authority to give life and pass judgment now in the present, that's verses 19 to 24, so you can have eternal life. You can move from the realm of death to life. That can be true for you now. But also, from verses 25 to 29, Jesus ratchets things up further and focuses now on the future and on the power his word will have on the future day of judgment. And I want to say it's marvelous. It is wonderful. The power of Jesus' words. Jesus says in verse 25, I tell you the truth, a time is now coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And Jesus is speaking, what's he speaking about? The resurrection to life of believers from the grave. This is more than someone's soul just living on with Christ after they die. Back in 1998, many of you were not born, but back then, I was holidaying with my family on Norfolk Island. 
Bronwyn, our eldest, was three years old. And I remember sitting out on the veranda having breakfast with her and she looked up from her breakfast and we were surrounded by tropical flowers in sort of an ideal paradise. And she said to me with this beautiful innocent smile which children have, Dad, we're not gonna die, are we? And I gently told her that no, we would die. And you know how children's faces betray raw emotion? And her little face just crumpled up in grief. I remember it so clearly. And so what I did was I got her and I took her in the car and I drove to the convict cemetery on the island. And I showed her the gravestones and I explained how when people die they get buried. And together we saw the children's graves and she lay down on top of them. And uh, she did that. And, uh, and then I told her Jesus' words of how one day he would appear and his powerful voice would call out and then those who had believed in him would rise to life from the grave with new bodies. And she looked at me in wonder as if to say, you're really being serious with me, Dad. And I told her of the pictures of resurrection which we read about in John's Gospel. I mean, the first is Jesus' miracle that Michael took you through last week, Jesus healing the lame man at the pool. It's a picture of resurrection because literally Jesus told him to rise up. And those words are used of Jesus. And it's the same words that Jesus will say to the dead. Rise up. And then, of course, there's the miracle of, uh, of Lazarus rising in John chapter 11, he, him raising from the dead. Four days he's been in the grave. Putrefaction would have set in. People know that. Don't roll the stone away. He's going to pong. And yet at Jesus' words, that putrefaction is immediately reversed. Life enters his body and... Out he hops, you know, wrapped in, take off his bandages, let him go. It's a picture of resurrection. This is what Jesus says will happen to all who believe in him. And the reasons are the same. Verse 26, Jesus says, for as the Father has life in himself, creating the world from a, a word, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. Verse 27, and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Now, why does he go from life to judgment? Why does he go from resurrection to judgment in one breath? Because the day of resurrection, you see, is the day of judgment. The day of judgment is the day of resurrection. Verse 28, it's not only believers who will rise. He says, do not be amazed at this. The time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good will rise to live and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. On the day of judgment, everyone will hear the voice of the Son of God, and everyone will rise to face their judge, unless, of course, there is no judgment for you because you have transferred from death to life. Oh, what a blessing that is. Now, I, I, of course, as I speak about the general resurrection and the judgment of the living and the dead, Many people will balk at it because when the exclusion and inclusion criteria is so stark, what does Jesus say? He says, those who have done good 
will enter life, those who've done evil will be condemned. What does that mean? Doing good, doing evil. Well, it has to be understood in terms of the core truth at the center of the universe that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior. Doing good has to be someone who's lived their life around that truth, who believe in him. You cannot do good and ignore the core truth. Doing evil must be someone who pushes against that and resists it all their lives. So that's why salvation is only found in him. Now, of course, at that point, a lot of people balk. It sounds so narrow, so intolerant, but it isn't. Um, heaven, every picture in the Bible of heaven is, has God there, and he is worshipped, and the lamb is worshipped, Jesus, on the, on the throne. The lamb who was slain, who with his blood purchased people from every tribe, language, people and nation, and they are there. It's only they who are there, okay? Heaven is not um, a multi-faith worship sort of enterprise where you've got Muslims over there and, you know. It, it's not that, it's not that. The Lord, the one who is God, will be there with his people. And where eternal matters are at stake, we can't afford to be confused on it. No one but Jesus has the authority, you see, to bring people from death to life. Um, Buddha never raised anyone from the dead. Muhammad in his life never did it. It's just the truth. Neither did these people die for people's sins so that they could be saved. They have not been given the authority to raise the dead. They haven't been given the authority to pay for someone's sins. They, they don't have authority on the day of judgment, but Jesus does. And he's one with the Father on this, and that's his defense of those who are intolerant of him. Now, let me ask you how it sits with you. <laughs> what do you make of it? They're just words, but what about other witnesses? Well, very quickly, Jesus calls three witnesses for the defense. First was John the Baptist, accepted by everyone as a prophet from God. John pointed people to Jesus. The second witness was the miracles themselves, which Jesus speaks of in verse 36. They themselves testify the Father sent Jesus because who could do these things if he were not from God? The final witness are the Father's own words about his Son recorded in the Scriptures. These last words are very important because in calling his witnesses, Jesus swaps role in the trial. He has been the defendant until now, the one in the dock, the one on trial, but now he's calling witnesses, he's acting like a prosecutor, now the tables are turned in this episode, now the Jewish leaders find themselves in the dock, now they have to answer for their intolerance. They know the Bible, but it's not enough. You diligently study the scriptures because you, you think that by them you possess eternal life, Jesus says, but these are the scriptures that testify about me, and yet you still refuse to come to me to have life. You can know a lot of Bible, Knowledge alone isn't enough. You've got to come to him. You've got to believe in him. Why do they refuse? Partly it's a head issue. An unwillingness to actually believe what the Bible says, verse 46. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, says Jesus, because he wrote about me. But if you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? It's a head issue. It's also a heart issue, verse 42. He says, I know you. 
I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. That's the problem, you see. And that's why, why he says in verse 43, I have come in my Father's name and you do not accept me. We could know a lot about the Bible. You could be here. I could be preaching and know a lot about the Bible, but still not accept Jesus in our heart as our Lord, as our Savior. Have you? Do you? Do you say, yes, Jesus is my Lord? Yes, he is my Savior. Is that true for you? That's what we have to do, isn't it? It's clear, drawing to an end, what we must not do. We mustn't use Jesus like the man who got healed, healed but kept sinning and then when told to stop sinning or something worse may happen to him, he betrayed Jesus to the Jews. Jesus' warning still stood for him, something worse may happen. There is a day of judgment, friends. Jesus will be our judge and God is calling us to honour his son by listening to his words and to stop our sinning. We can't use Jesus as a license to sin. We've got to stop it. Secondly, we mustn't refuse Jesus like the Jewish leaders did, refused in their heads to believe, refused in their hearts to love God. We mustn't do that. We have to choose with our heads to believe and we have to choose to love God in our heart. So we can't refuse Jesus. And we, then thirdly, we mustn't let ourselves be silenced. I think this is for us. Pe- you know, people are intolerant of Christianity and we are now in a minority following the census for the first time in Australian history. The temptation is to go to give in to silence, but Jesus doesn't. He shows a better way. He challenges people who want to make him silent. And it's worth doing because it's not as if they have anything better to say. Um, two weeks ago, when I wasn't here, I was doing a funeral for Narelle's mum. Um, and in the preparation of that funeral, I spoke to numerous family members, two of whom said, I do not want you to do an evangelistic sermon. And I said, well, okay, I'm not gonna do an altar call at a funeral, but you do understand that I have to speak about the hope in Christ because I have nothing else to say. What other hope is there in the face of death? There's nothing. And then they had no answer to that, so I did. (laughs) Um, We have to believe, don't we? That's something that we must do. We've heard what we must not do, now what must we do? The passage has wonderful truths. Such great blessing for for all those who freely believe. Those who hear Jesus' words and believe in God have crossed over from death, death to life. Eternal life is ours in the present. There is no judgment, right? That makes life very rich, doesn't it? And it takes all fear out of the day of judgment. And then if that weren't enough, there is the future blessing of the resurrection of the dead to come. That is such a wonderful hope, friends. It is wonderful, and it's the truth. And we're meant to believe it. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus in setting forth the truth so clearly to people who wanted to shut him up. Father, help us not to refuse him. Help us not to be silent either 
and to give in to, to the cultural pressure just to shut up about Jesus. Father, help us rather to believe in him, to believe in him so deeply that we have moved from death to life, that we know that we have eternal life, that we have a great hope for the future, the hope of the resurrection, and that we're free, being filled with this hope to speak. Father, give us opportunities and courage. In Jesus' name, amen.